Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kenawamba, physician executive at Gentum Health, and we're joined by Dr. Tiffany Botorf, Makala Botorf. That's right. Botorf. Yeah, Makala Botorf. It's a mouthful, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for spending some time with us. I'm glad we're able to get you here for a little bit. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me um, and, you know, happy to help. All right, great. Before we jump into things, tell us a little bit about yourself. What motivated you to become a doctor? Sure. Um, so being honest, I was a quote unquote good girl growing up, especially when I was younger. And uh, I followed instructions very well. So I'm from a Caribbean family. And in those days, the expectation was that you would be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And that was pretty much the extent of uh, quote unquote acceptable occupations. And I was good at science. So it was really that simple. There was not uh, a whole lot of other stuff that initially went into it. I think I was maybe five years old the first time I said, oh, I want to be a doctor. And my mother in true, you know, Caribbean fashion said she just took it and ran with it. So every time someone asked uh, oh, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And my mother would answer, she wants to be a doctor. And eventually, I believed it probably just as much as she did. And that was it. Oh, wow. That, uh, that, that sounds very similar to the um, kind of first generation experience where yes. you have that <laughs> doctor, lawyer, or engineer um, kind of situation, ultimatum, if you will. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that being said, can you tell us a little bit about your journey uh, through undergraduate to medical school and how um, how that sort of prepared you for residency? Oh, absolutely. So I, I chose to go to Howard. Um, I grew up in a majority situation in South Florida, and I chose to go to an HBCU. It was very good for me. It's probably one of the best decisions that I made. And I stayed at Howard for um, undergrad and medical school. Although I love Howard Med, I, I don't necessarily recommend that. I think that it's better to, you know, explore different areas. Um, but I just uh, didn't want to leave D.C. The preparation that I got there, though, was um, the kind of mentoring that I needed. Just And it wasn't necessarily organized mentoring. It wasn't that I sat down with someone every week. But it was more so the daily mentoring, right? The mentoring that I got from my fellow students that had all varied backgrounds, the mentoring that I got from professors, the mentoring that I got from physicians uh, at the hospital that was adjoined to the medical school. So I think all of that definitely played in to uh, my medical school experience, which was excellent, and also played into the level of connection that I have with my fellow uh, students, you know, 20 years later. So uh, in terms of residency, I chose to do emergency medicine and I did a two, three, four program, which I'm not even sure that those programs are really popular anymore. At the time, emergency medicine was a very new specialty just formed in the late seventies, early eighties. And so people didn't really have a lot of confidence in emergency medicine as its own individual thing. So most people 
were overtrained. That was kind of the, you know, the, um, the expectation at the time to be good in every subspecialty as opposed to creating uh, a niche just for emergency medicine. So um, in my residency experience, I also enjoyed more mentoring. And so some of that was formal, but still the same kind of informal you're able to find when you get into an area that you quote unquote fit in. And so I think that those choices of where you choose to go are just as important as what you're actually choosing to do. Hmm. This makes so it it sounds like you you your educational experience um, was uh, supported by a strong sense of community, and that seems to echo um, throughout your your matriculation um, as you kind of went through residency. It seems like these notions um, are really important for you. And now you're kind of in a position that builds a community kind of for private practice doctors. Is that correct? I am actually, I am. I am uh, the, currently the board president of T. Leroy Jefferson Medical Society, which is a subchapter of the National Medical Association, uh, which is the collective voice of physicians of color in the United States, specifically physicians of the African diaspora. So formed, uh, you know, 125 years ago uh, as an answer to the NMA, uh, to the AMA, excuse me, when it was not quite as inclusive. So what we do here uh, locally is we work with people. So we work with physicians and actually other subspecialties in uh, medicine, so like psychologist and optometrist, podiatrists, who all essentially have smaller private practices. And we help to connect people to people, people to uh, mentoring relationships of younger people, people to mentoring relationships with older uh, physicians, and just provide general support. Well, that's really interesting to our listeners because uh, there's a big question mark around private practice. Uh, As you know and are familiar, uh, residency training doesn't really go into the facets of private practice that are relevant in the real world. So um, in terms of your experience building out that community of private practice doctors, um, you know, what uh, can an interested physician do to connect and really um, build relationships in that type of community? So you're speaking of someone specifically not in a community that has this kind of organization, Correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to uh, that young physician, just finished residency, maybe is currently employed, seeking out private practice, just trying to understand what's involved and doesn't really have a place to go for that information. Hmm. Sounds like a tough situation. Uh, I think it depends on where you are. 
So different parts of the country certainly have different uh, spins on things. What do I mean by that? Um, here in the same local region in South Florida, we have um, another local medical society, which is uh, not part of the NMA, called the Palm Beach Medical Society. And although I don't think that mentoring is necessarily one of their um, strong areas um, or interphysician mentoring, I think that that's something that actually could be built out to for a young physician if they feel like they need a sense of community and they need um, that level of support. If it doesn't exist where they already are, most likely there are medical associations where they are. And that would be something that unfortunately they would probably have to carve out themselves if it doesn't already exist. But I would definitely recommend going to a larger group, a, me a medical association or society, because it would just, uh, it just makes connecting to more physicians easier. Uh, if that physician is hospital-based at all or has any privileges at a local hospital, that's also another good way. Actually just going to the medical staff office and asking which physicians are here, have been here for a long time, who is willing to mentor, because most physicians um, in private practice that have hospital privileges have been there for a very long time. I can speak for my specific hospital. Those physicians have been there 20, 30 years. And so the medical staff um, employees and facilitators are very familiar with most of the physicians and can definitely um, recommend alliances. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that insight. Um, you know, it, it can kind of go unnoticed when you're in the hospital, kind of tending to administrative duties uh, in the whole flux of things that you have colleagues that are in private practice who are also there attending to the patients as well and, and kind of tapping those individuals to understand what their experience has been can be a source of support. Um, when you sort of uh, take all of that into consideration and, and look at the current situation with COVID-19, um, where physicians in their current employed situation might feel um, under-resourced uh, because of a lack of PPE or a lack of administrative support, um, where would you suggest those physicians go to, uh, to connect, to build relationships, to overcome some of those anxieties? So uh, this is actually kind of funny. Dr. Ikenna, I, so during this podcast, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting on what I'm saying as I'm saying it. And it sounds to me like I'm just a big, huge joiner being funny about it, but being serious, I really do believe in organizations. And I think that you don't have to reinvent the wheel multiple times. Um, specifically, what do I mean by that? In terms of PPE here in this local area, uh, because I am uh, president of the local chapter of the NMA, we were able to secure, you know, 10,000 masks for donation from the state. And that is from a collective voice. So there really is uh, power in numbers. And if you're by yourself, 
it's easy to overlook a single physician as a complainer, you know, about PPE or even about the situation in terms of uh, private practice or patients dwindling um, and that kind of thing. But once you're connected, you are not by yourself. You have the volume, you have the shared experience, you have the insight of other physicians and also their resources. So I can speak for my local area because this is, uh, I guess, one of my passions and one of the things I do it was important for me to be sure that all of the physicians that I was associated with had access to PPE. We started out with 10,000 masks and then it doubled to 20,000 masks and they're all just to be given away. So I imagine that there are other people around the country that probably feel the same and, um, you know, a little bit more experienced and are definitely open and willing to help uh, younger physicians because at some point, those younger physicians will take care of us. Certainly, certainly. Thank you for that. Now, I mean, you're you're speaking from your perspective and your experience. And I think, um, you know, kind of in your community, uh, maybe this is something that many have heard over and over again. Um, in, in other communities, however, um, especially where the emphasis is less on kind of physician autonomy, physician community, and more around productivity. Um, these type of things are not as uh, read- readily, um, are just not readily uh, viewed or understood. So thank you for sharing. Um, so just, just to give a little bit more background. So although I do work with a lot of private practice physicians, I am not primarily private practice. I do have a wellness center um, that focuses on sexual health that is my private quote unquote practice um, area, but I'm a board certified emergency medicine physician. We live on productivity, right? We, uh, we, most of us practice just on an RVU model. So you eat what you kill, period. And if you don't kill anything, you're not eating very much. So I, I definitely do understand um, that the differences in medicine and like the differences in, I guess, areas, even within the same larger area. With that being said, uh, in the emergency department, when I felt that we were not being given enough uh, PPE and we didn't have a large enough voice um, because obviously of the situation, specifically something is, you know, endemic and pandemic and COVID, which is unusual, right? Every hundred years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um so definitely not a usual type of situation, but I'll tell you, you know, as a physician with many years of uh, experience, I was worried about our protection and I didn't get the answers that I wanted to hear, which is why I organized to be sure that other people didn't have to worry about that themselves. One thing that this crisis, this pandemic has really illustrated um in addition to kind of some of the difficulties that that some of the challenges that we have yet to overcome in healthcare with with respect to capacity, with respect to public health efforts. Um, But it really has shown um, how resourceful the physician community can be, the nurse community can be um, when they face uh, hardship and adversity. So um, thank you for sharing that piece of your story. Let's hop into this wellness center. I think many listeners will be interested to hear 
what your journey was, why you decided to kind of go this path and what your model is. Um, sure. Yeah. So uh, like I stated before, I am emergency medicine. I trained at a trauma center in very urban New York in the Bronx. And that was, and, and I actually, and I went to a medical school in a very urban area. So I am no uh, novice when it comes to like trauma and resuscitation. And that's what we do. Um, that type of model allows you to become very, very versed at illness in illness, right? So you, you can recognize a sick patient. They don't have to say anything to you. You walk by the room, you say, wait a minute, that person looks sick. And that comes just from a level of experience. Well, over and over, I, uh, you know, recognize a sick patient, take care of the sick patient. Um, and I, and I actually love what I do. I actually love dealing with patients in general, but, uh, just the illness, the constant illness after a while made me a little sad. And the more I prescribed medications, the more that also made me a little sad. On some level, I started to feel like a, like a pusher, essentially. Although these medications were kind of necessary for people to kind of maintain what we have decided to be homeostasis. Um, when I look at, you know, my... 75 and 80 year old patients that are taking duplicates and triplicates of their things, you know, I'm like, man, there's a problem here, you know? And I kind of wrestled with it for a long time back and forth. Um, but it kind of led me to want to focus more on wellness. And so unfortunately it's difficult to practice wellness on a 95 year old, right? Geriatric wellness those people that are well at 90 and 95 are those people are well because they were well at 75 and they were well at 55 and they were well at 35. Right. And right. so it starts earlier. It doesn't start kind of at the end of the road, but um, so that was my, I guess my introduction into it. Um, and I chose to tap into an area of wellness that is almost uh, just as, uncomfortable for people to speak about as mental illness. And you know, I want to talk about mental illness. Most, you know, I would say at least a quarter of the population has probably one ICD-9 type of identifiable, you know, thing, mm -hmm. right? At least a quarter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. most of us are very functional, but none of us talk about it. And I think that in now, definitely with COVID and in the days to come, that kind of um, discomfort becomes more normalized because everyone is kind of in this situation to see kind of where they really are, right? No one takes that much time with themselves. Eight weeks is a long time to kind of uh, not have a lot of external interaction. So anyway, what, what I'm doing specifically, though, is more focused on sexual wellness. And so um, I think that sex is an important part of life. And the wellness associated with that is an important part of life and um, feeling complete and fulfilled in that area of your life allows you to be more productive in general, um, less depression, lowers your blood pressure, changes the this eating is very habits and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that is what, you know, that is my, one of my other passions, I guess I have a lot of passions, but 
um, just wanting people to be able to enjoy the fullness of their life as it was intended to be, in my mind, as it was intended to be. And so as we get older, things change. You know, your sexual function isn't the same at 19 as it is at 59. And a lot of people suffer in silence because it is taboo and because they don't believe that there are many options. But nowadays there are more options and that's what I'm offering for people. I I used to work in the VA and you would have these sort of quote unquote taboo conversations behind closed doors. And, and it's really, that's really a moment where uh, the investment in building trust becomes um, uh, visible because the patient might open up to you about these kind of matters, these sexual matters, and tell you, well, I haven't talked to anyone about this for like five, six mm-hmm. years. Yeah, people suffer and in silence it, for long periods of time. Yeah. So um, kudos to you for, for identifying that and, and building a resource for the community. I think that's really meaningful and, 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 and really thoughtful. Well, thank you. Um, you know, that being said, uh, I'd, I'd love to learn more about your model. So, you know, when you say find, uh, you know, a patient or a patient is referred to you for these types of services, are they going to a physical location um, or are they are they uh, hosting the, the communication virtually? Yeah, so we actually have a telemedicine platform um, that we use. We utilize Teledactyl. Um, and okay. they have multiple like rooms, you know, per se, and kind of a whole virtual office platform. Uh, so that's nice in these times that you can kind of have that initial consultation and build what you talked about, the rapport and the trust with the patient and really understand, um, you know, kind of what is going on. In terms of mm-hmm. um, my actual physical location, it's more of a concierge level medicine. Um, we don't take insurance because, you know, unfortunately, the rest of the world hasn't caught up to the fact that this is very important, you know, um, mm-hmm. and hopefully at some point they will, but we're not there yet. So um, we try to make sure that, you know, people have a, a nice quick visit um, for any procedures that they may need. So we try to do most things out of the office and just uh, procedures in the office. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, you know, in terms of your journey to, to build out this private practice model, what uh, tidbits of advice would you give to a young physician who has similar aspirations um, or older physician, for that matter, has aspirations to open up a practice? Um, it's a journey and I'm still learning. You know, I'm still uh, growing. And I hope that I never stop growing. I hope I never stop learning. Uh, Just, I guess, you know, my mantra, you know, reach out. If you're not sure, ask somebody. (laughs) There's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Many people have done it. Um, So just reach out, make alliances. And uh, I would also say, take a little time. So if you are gainfully employed, you're doing something right now, Something is always, well, this is my probably Caribbean, 
you know, uh, first generation type of mentality, something is better than nothing. So you want to, you know, make sure that you have all your uh, finances and resources um, intact prior to trying to jump out and reinvent the wheel. Because unfortunately with the wheel, I guess there are probably many different um, versions of it, but there's one that we use over and over again, right? So you don't want to invent like kind of the square wheel or the oblong wheel that doesn't really work. So if you have something good, you know, make sure that you've kind of maxed out in that area uh, before you jump into something else. I would say um, build up resources for yourself within your community. So, you know, find a banker. It can be a small relationship, but those relationships grow and having relationships with people changes what you're able to buy, your investment power and that kind of thing. Um, Find a mentor. That mentor doesn't have to be in your area. It can really be anywhere, the, the whole world, not even just the country, because we are such a digital Um, and tech savvy type of society these days. You're not limited to location. Um, Find your passion. So that's a really big deal because doing the same thing over and over again for, you know, a year, two years, five years, not such a big deal. 10 years, eh, you're probably okay. 20, 30, 40 years, that's a really long time. So you have to determine, I guess, what your career is choice or path is going to be um, and making sure that you're doing something that will make you happy, that will make you want to go to work. Like I see, um, I have a friend who's in our local society uh, who is approaching 70. You know, I have some of these doctors in their 70s that are still working because they really, really love what they do. At this point, it's not about the money, right? It's about feeling fulfilled Um, and they like to continue on that way, that meaningful journey for them. And then I have people in their early thirties who are, you know, kind of burning out, quote unquote. I just think that you haven't found your passion. If you're burnt out at 32, you just, you're not there. This is not what you should be doing. And you've got to sit down, take some time, maybe meditate a bit, reevaluate and figure out what is the right way for you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for for your time. Thank you so much for those kernels of wisdom. Um, you know, the journey is, is long and oftentimes um, I think by virtue of just being a physician, uh, we're very achievement oriented and believe that once we attain a certain number of degrees that that's it we're happy and we've achieved fulfillment because our parents can now say okay you're a doctor you're you're good you're you've uh you've made me proud and then i think that really just kind of opens up the the portal to a new journey one of self-fulfillment that you know is a little a little less obvious a little less defined so um thank you very much for your advice because many don't have that uh, benefit of experience well thank you so much for having me and you know in any way that i can be a resource to you or to other younger physicians you know i'm happy to do it okay fantastic 
Uh, thank you very much for your time, and you have a, a great rest you too. of your Bye-bye day. Now. All right, bye bye.